This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. This is Michael Cantrell coming to you from Cat Street Studios in beautiful downtown Dolgovka, Russia. (laughs) Well, if you don't know exactly what I'm talking about, listen to the previous episode, number 109, where I talk about Cat Street Studios and beautiful downtown Dolgovka. Today, I am going to offer to you a few tips for teachers. I wasn't quite sure what to call this episode because it's not really just for teachers. Many of you will be given an opportunity to share in a small group or to lead a devotional, maybe teach from the pulpit or teach at a seminar. So this talk is not only for those who are recognized as teachers in a church, but it's really for anyone who may be asked to speak in front of a group. And these will be just some tips, some things that I've learned over the years. Though I need to start with a warning. In James chapter 3, James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Not many of you listening to me should become teachers. (laughs) How about that? There's so much emphasis today in the church about being leaders. Everybody needs to be a leader. You have your place of leadership. But uh, honestly, scripturally, we aren't all to be called into leadership. We're all to serve. We're all to use our gifts to help other people. But we shouldn't all presume to take a place of leadership. And James is saying that not many should be teachers because teachers are going to be judged more strictly. And I believe this is because teachers have influence. Uh, These days, and I'm speaking right now in the year 2023, So I'm going to date this talk. Somebody may be listening 10 years from now. I hope so. And I don't know if we'll have influencers in social media. Don't even know if we'll have social media 10 years from now. But these days, we have what are called influencers in social media. And these are people who do indeed influence the culture, and very much so. They'll create short videos or videos on YouTube. Will we have YouTube in 10 years? Who knows? But these influencers... They have an influence in the culture, and I think it's a word that had to be created because nobody knew exactly what to call people who suddenly have the ability to reach from their home into the homes of millions, into the minds of millions, through what are non-traditional ways. And these influencers affect the culture, very much so. And they are, in a sense, teachers because they lead people into a way of thinking, into a set of values. Honestly, I think most influencers don't think about themselves that way. They're probably trying to express themselves, or perhaps they want to be famous, make money. Their motivation is not primarily to influence people. It's to draw attention to themselves or to be considered valuable in the culture. They are, as I said, in a sense, teaching And that's because they lead people into a way of thinking about things, into a worldview, into a set of values. And almost 100% of these influencers lead people away from the things of God. 
And honestly, they're going to be judged pretty strictly, I believe, for that. It's one thing to sit in your house and have your thoughts. It's another thing to presume to lead millions of people into your way of seeing things and your set of values. It would be better for a person to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause other people to sin. And honestly, a lot of these influencers are leading people into sin, and they're going to be judged strictly. And teachers in the church are also going to be judged with greater strictness for the same reason, because teachers in the church are influencers, and they should be influencers, good influencers in the church. Teachers are there to lead people into a deeper understanding of the kingdom. And we will be judged more strictly because of the seriousness of this responsibility. A teacher's words and actions carry a greater weight in a fellowship than those who are not in a leadership position. If a teacher falls, well, we've seen it happen, then many people can be taken down with them. Many may fall away because a teacher falls. And not only does the church suffer when this happens, when a teacher falls into sin, the world is watching, and the world will mock the name of Jesus, mock the church. Many of us have experienced a teacher who is neither gifted nor morally qualified, and we need to be careful about that. We should not presume to be teachers. We should not presume to be influencers. And... We should judge those who presume to teach. I hope that you're judging me. I hope that you check me out. In Acts chapter 17, we see an example of that. It's where Paul and Silas go to Berea. And uh, this is in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 10. When they arrived in Berea, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And then uh, it says in the book of Acts, These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, Because the Jews in Berea received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The Bereans are a very good example to us, and they're held up as being noble people. They weren't skeptical because they received that word eagerly. But they also checked the teachings that they were receiving against the scriptures to make sure that what they were hearing was really in line with what God had revealed. The Bible is the standard by which we should judge teachers. There are many people today who preach the gospel out of selfish motivations. I can say that because I believe I've witnessed it, but it's scriptural. That was happening in the first century. Pastors who love to be first, people who are making money by preaching the gospel, we have to be careful not to give too much influence or authority to those people. Now, we should judge what they say, if what they say is true or not, but also be careful about their moral qualities and to judge them that way, to be cautious. All this said, the Bible does say that teachers should develop the gift of teaching in order to serve the church. The gifts of God are to be used for service in the church. And this is the context for which I offer these, um, these little tips for teachers, that we could develop the gift of teaching and have a few, um, a few tools in our toolkit. Again, many of you may be given an opportunity to share in a small group or lead a devotional at a meeting, and maybe you'll teach in a pulpit or teach at some big meeting. 
Uh, this reminds me. I went to a meeting in a big stadium in the United States. This was when the Promise Keepers movement was uh, very strong in the USA many years ago. And we were at a stadium, uh, like a football stadium. It sat forty or 50,000 people at least, I think. And it was all full of men. And this very famous nationally recognized teacher and preacher took the stage and was going to get us all fired up, you know. Big event, big sound system, like I say, maybe 50,000 men sitting there. And it's a stadium, so it's a big circle all around this big stage down there. And this very famous teacher told us all, he said, look to the man on your left and say, I'm glad you're here. And there was a confused rumble from about 50,000 men as everybody looked to the left and was looking at the back of the head of the man next to him. (laughs) It was hilarious. And the preacher had no idea what he had just done. (laughs) So I turned and I looked and I'm looking at the hair of the man next to me because he's looking at the guy to his left. And I'm like, "Uh, I guess I'm glad you're here. And then the teacher doubled down. He said, now look to the man on the right and say, God is going to bless you. Something like that. So we all turned our heads and now we're looking at the hair of the guy on the right. So what I wanted, well, let's avoid those things. (laughs) That was a funny example of you just need to know your technique. You need to know what the circumstances are and what to avoid. It sounded right until you put it into practice. And so it was funny to hear this rumble of confusion break out as everybody was kind of half laughing, half joking, unsure exactly what to do. Uh, The first thing that I want to mention here is, um, it's not the difference, it's how to understand technique and inspiration. And uh, this is a lesson I learned a long time ago when I was studying uh, music, how to play at first the cello and later the guitar. There's a difference between technique and inspiration. And recognizing this difference and understanding it is true in almost every area of life, anywhere we learn something new. We learn a technique and then we master the technique. Uh, Technically, we can be very good at something. And once we have a good foundation of technique then inspiration can take it to the next level. But we need to have a really good understanding of what are the technical issues involved. For instance, if I'm playing the cello, I need to technically have the skills to play scales, that my left hand will be in the right place for intonation, that my bow hand will be fluid and smooth so that I have control. And this is all technical. I just technically understand how to play the cello. This is true of the guitar or the keyboard anything. It applies to teaching as well. We need to master the techniques, and that can seem kind of dry, but it actually is the way things work. If you're going to build a house, if you're going to design anything, first you need to understand the tools and the techniques and physically what you got to do. And then after that, that's when inspiration can take over. So you have a good foundation of techniques. And what I'm going to share here are technical issues. They're just techniques that I've learned over the years. And some of these techniques are what we call in America pet peeves. A peeve is something that really bugs you. (laughs) And a pet peeve is like a thing that just constantly always drives me up the wall when I experience them. 
So I'm going to mention a few pet peeves of my own, and they're all things that I have done myself. About a week ago or so, I was speaking with the pastor about this topic, and I told him a few of the things that I was going to share in the podcast, and he said, well, I've done that. I was like, of course, yeah, brother, we all have done this. So here are tips for teachers, and again, these are just technical issues that I hope will be helpful to you if you're speaking in front of a large group of people, or even if you're just speaking at a small group or leading a devotional, uh, five-minute devotional before a meeting somewhere. Uh, What I'm going to share also, they're not in any particular order. So the first one that I have written down is really just the first thing that came to mind. And I've labeled it gesture from right to left. When you're facing a group of people, Your right is their left, and most languages read from left to right, and that means most people will follow thoughts from left to right, their left to their right. And I've seen preachers make this mistake often, and I did it until somebody told me that when I gesture, I should gesture from right to left. So, for example, if you're teaching about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, You say, in the Old Covenant, you raise your right hand to show this is the Old Covenant. This is what I'm talking about. In the Old Covenant, this and this and this. And then in the New Covenant, you raise your left hand to indicate the New Covenant. That means the people that are looking at you, you have led them from left to the right. It is your right to your left. But the people watching, it's from their left to their right. And it's interesting how this will throw you off a little bit. I've seen preachers talk about issues like this where they make a list and they'll gesture from their left to their right. And it's the opposite of the way that I'm thinking as I'm sitting in the congregation watching. And it's just a small thing, but it really does help communicate. It's, it helps communicate visually what you're talking about. So gesture from the right to the left. Uh, I don't know if that made sense, but I think that's about the best I can do with it. Okay, the next thing that I have here is titled, Slow Count to Seven. (laughs) Again, I'm not quite sure what to call this, but this is it. When you ask a question, or when you make room for people in the congregation to ask you a question, and you say, does anybody have anything they'd like to share? Something like that. Then you do a slow count to seven and wait for the response. People do not like silence, and teachers in particular do not like silence. And sadly, often teachers like the sound of their own voice. But we've got to be willing to bear an uncomfortable silence to give people the opportunity to form their thoughts and then share their thoughts with us. And uh, somebody asked me when I shared this in a different setting, they said, why do you say a slow count to seven rather than just count to 10? Well, for one thing, somebody told me to do a slow count to seven, so that's why I'm telling you. But the reason I think it's important to say a slow count to seven is the word slow is the key word. If I do a slow count to seven, it means I take time. And I was speaking at a YWAM meeting, at Youth with a Mission, at a YWAM base in Romania not too long ago. 
And I had finished my presentation, and then I asked, does anybody here have a question? And I started my slow count to seven in my mind. Don't say it out loud. Just in your own mind, start a slow count to seven. And sure enough, almost at exactly the moment I said the number seven internally, a young lady raised her hand and had a question for me. So be willing to make room for silence. Be willing to wait. Just do a slow count to seven. If you ask people for input or feedback or anything, for instance, uh, sometimes in sermons, I'll say, who here would like to share a favorite scripture? And then I do a slow count to seven. Some people need time to form their thoughts. Some people need time to get up their courage. Um, and also people in the congregation or in the group, they don't like a silence. They don't like kind of dead time in a talk. And so they'll speak to fill up the silence. So anyway, do a slow count to seven if you ever ask for feedback or input from the congregation. Okay, here comes a big pet peeve. Don't say, in conclusion, and then talk for another 20 minutes. Please, please don't do that. Please don't do that. Don't set people up that you're about to finish things up and then go for another 10, 15, 20 minutes basically a whole nother sermon. Just don't say it. Sometimes it's helpful to say my last point is this, or I'd like to finish up with this, but don't say I'm going to finish up with this thought and then go for another 20 minutes. I remember hearing somebody say that a guy was a preacher who could squeeze a 20 minute sermon into an hour. (laughs) And I've, boy, I've seen that where, uh, teacher or a preacher would cover the same ground four or five times and just to fill up the time. And uh, I know that I've done it myself. I know that I've done it myself. But I am begging you, dear listener, if you're teaching in a group or anything like that, don't say in conclusion and then talk for another 20 minutes. All right, so the next section is really about notes and presentation. A teacher's role, in my understanding, a teacher's role is to create a flow of thought. A teacher's role is to create a line of thinking. And a teacher helps lead people through this order of thoughts in order to gain understanding or a deeper knowledge about something. That's what a teacher is. Now, a preacher may be there to inspire or to build up. A prophet, of course, is encouraging people and comforting people. But a teacher, that role is to define a line of thinking and lead people through this line of thinking so that they get a deeper understanding about something. And this is why it's very important for teachers to use notes. There was a time when I was a teacher at a church many years ago in the States I would go up with a small piece of paper with just a few bullet points listed on it. And I would kind of talk myself through that list. But now I realize, now it's so good to have extensive notes in front of me so that I can follow that line of thought through from beginning to end. So use notes. Don't repeat yourself unless you plan to repeat yourself. And I've seen this happen a lot. I've done it too, I know. 
there's a main point that I want to communicate through a teaching. And if I don't have extensive notes, I'll say that point five, six, seven, eight times. And it gets repetitive and there's not a line of thinking and people can get confused. And it's just really good to have notes and order your notes so that they are helpful to you in following that line of thought. I had to spend some time working on how would I have my notes laid out to help me go through my teaching. And I use, if anybody's seen my notes, I use a lot of bullet points and a lot of white space, double returns and things like that. Things that'll help me follow these thoughts through. I'm doing it right now, as a matter of fact. I'm reading my notes and I have a lot of bullet points and a lot of white space. I have bold text and underlined text to help me catch my eye. And even before I go up, actually just yesterday at church I was speaking, and before I went up to teach, I had a pen and I was highlighting things and marking through things. And But order your notes in such a way that they help you to follow through this line of thinking. Be specific in your notes when you need to be specific. Uh, There are times when I have a quote or, of course, scripture verses, things like that, which I'll talk about in a second. If you need to be specific in your notes, then specifically write it down. But there are other times when a general outline is good enough, perhaps a bullet point with just a a couple of words to remind me of what I want to say at that point. Order your notes so that they help you as you go through the teaching. Now, um, there are different ways to think about how to go through a teaching, and some people will say, I've heard this presented pretty often as a way to teach, tell people what you are going to say, and then say it, and then tell them what you just said. So it's very clear exactly what you're talking about. And I used to do that, Uh, but now I don't. And uh, now I think of teaching, well, it's kind of like telling a story. It's moving through a series of thoughts or even through a series of events or experiences as people get revelation and understanding. So you have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and there is a theme and there is a purpose, but I'm not as repetitive as perhaps some who would say that you need to tell people what you're going to say, and then you say it, and then you tell them what you just said. Now, Elizabeth Elliot, who I've mentioned pretty often on the podcast, Uh, She had very clearly an outline for all of her talks, and very often she would tell her listeners exactly what the headings were. The title of the talk is this, this is the heading that we're under, and this is point number one under that heading. She assumed that people were taking notes. I could have done that with you because I do have a title and I do have headings, but I'm moving through these things, and I'm not taking so much care to tell you exactly where we are in the notes. Now, I've taught quite a bit in Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and the churches where I have spoken have a really, really good tradition of people taking notes. Of course, I've been speaking at pastors' meetings, uh, leadership seminars, and things like that. And the attendees will come in with notepads, pencils, pens, and they are taking notes on everything that is said. And a really good thing that they have there, and I wish, I really wish it were everywhere, is after the speaker has spoken, there is a time of question and answers. 
So the people who have been taking notes and listening to me speak then have 10, 15 minutes or so after I finished to ask questions about what they just heard. I did a a teaching. I don't think I've done the podcast on this. It's on the subject of between death and resurrection. What happens to human beings between death and resurrection when we are unembodied spirits? What does the Bible say? And it's pretty interesting to people. Uh, But the Bible doesn't say a lot about these things. We have a few little windows into what happens between death and resurrection. And you remember, resurrection means that we are re-embodied spirits. So we're in a body now, and then when we die, our spirits leave our bodies. Our bodies die, but our spirits go on. And then there is a resurrection, and we are re-embodied in a new body. And what happens there? Well, I won't get off on that. I've already started going down that line of teaching about it. Well, after I had finished this talk about between death and resurrection at the church in Congo, uh, somebody asked a question that uh, I can't, you know, I wish I could remember what it was, but it was one of these questions where everybody really wants to know what happens at the moment of death or whatever, and there's nothing in the scripture about it. And so, They ask this very common question, and everybody in the room really wanted to know the answer to that. And I said, oh, well, that question is very easy to answer, a very simple answer to that question. And everybody's like, really? Oh, great, we're going to know. And then I told them, the answer is, we do not know. (laughs) They were all discouraged, but I said, the Bible doesn't say You've asked the question, but the Bible does not answer that question. And so the answer to that question is, we do not know. And anybody who says they do know is not telling the truth, because you can't know. Uh, Which reminds me, a friend of mine's grandmother died, and we went to the funeral, and it was an Orthodox, a Russian Orthodox funeral. And the priest came up with a booklet to my friend and said, okay, your grandmother died. I can't remember exactly what it was, but for instance, the priest said, your grandmother died at 6 p.m. on Thursday. And he opened up this booklet, and it had a timeline in it. And he said, this is, you know, when she died, and then she went into this part of the afterlife, and now she's in this place in the afterlife. And in a few days, she'll be in this place and this place. And it was this entire plan of what happens to the spirit after it leaves the body and moves into eternity. But it, where did they get that? Where does that come from? Certainly not in the scripture. Okay, pet peeve. Another pet peeve here. Avoid speculation. Avoid your own thoughts. This is tied in with this question about between death and resurrection. I could have shared what I thought might be true, maybe, but teachers need to avoid speculation. We've got to avoid just sharing what we think about things. And we need to teach what is true. What does the scripture say? What is God's character as he's revealed it? Now, of course, we interpret and we may teach differently on a particular subject than other teachers do. I mean, think about the book of Revelation. I've heard very trusted teachers present very different perspectives on the book of Revelation. But we need to try hard even though we are involved in interpretation, we've got to work hard not to let our own speculation get into our teaching. Uh, an example is one time I was speaking with a pastor, he's a young guy, and he told me that he was going to talk about hope. 
in his church. He was going to do a series on hope. And I said, oh yeah, really? Tell me all about it. And as he shared what he was going to say, it was all his thoughts about it, his own philosophies, his own worldview about hope and what hope is. And he he seemed very, uh, he was very enthusiastic and almost ecstatic as he talked about hope, but there were no scripture references. There wasn't even a reference to Jesus or the Lord. (laughs) It was just his thoughts about hope, what hope is. So at that point, I don't know, he's just a guy sharing his thoughts with a bunch of people. He's not teaching, and there's a great danger there because he is influencing people. But he's not teaching the Word of God. All right, another good point. This comes from David Pawson, this uh, English Bible teacher that I really respect. He passed away a few years ago, and I still listen to his teaching just regularly. David Pawson said, Once you have the meat, then add the gravy. So, once you know what you're going to teach and you understand all of the themes and everything like that, and you have the the deep things you want to communicate, add gravy to it. Uh, For those who are listening may not know what gravy is. Gravy is the sauce. You have meat, and then you add the sauce, and that just makes it so much better. And what David Pawson meant is that's when you add in humorous stories or jokes or uh, poems or things that will help people understand Something that catches the emotions of the people listening, it engages people, at least to keep them awake, (laughs) which um, sometimes it needs to happen. Uh, Once you have the meat, then add the gravy. And I'm going to mention this to you now because I just did it yesterday. I've been thinking about doing this for probably 20 years, and I finally did it yesterday. Uh, In the last few episodes, I've spoken about repentance, metanoia. And so I felt like I should share at church about metanoia, about repentance, true repentance. So I've been thinking about doing this, and this is the gravy. I added some gravy to the meat. And about a third of the way through my notes, I said, it would be good for us as a congregation to express in actions a form of repentance. And I made everybody turn their seats around and face the back of the room. I walked down the center aisle and I sat up back at the back and everybody turned around. Now the room has been reversed. And my point was, repentance is not just feeling sorry or being regretful for sin. It's a change of perspective. It's a change of your mind. It's a change of outlook. And it's a change that results in an action. And so I added the gravy of having everybody (laughs) stand up turn their chair around and face the other way. And several people remarked to me that it was really memorable. Actually, there was one guy, when I did it, he raised his hands up in exaltation. Yeah, yeah. He just thought that was the greatest way to teach what repentance is. Yeah, you got to turn. you got to do something. And then about another third of the way through, I reversed the room again. I said, okay, let's repent again. And we turned the room around and I went back up to the front. But that's an example of adding the gravy. Whatever you can add on top to help make things humorous or engaging, add the gravy. Okay, here is a pet peeve. And this one's come up uh, several times recently. And I've had to be extra careful about it. And just yesterday when I spoke, I had to put it into practice. 
If you present a scripture reference in your teaching, or if you're speaking to a small group or doing a devotional, wait for people to look up the scripture in their Bibles. Wait for them to do it. I have done this so many times the wrong way. In Jeremiah chapter 31, it says, and I'll just start saying it, and people, you'll hear people flipping, and you'll hear the pages rustling, and and that their their minds are not following you. They're, they're hunting around trying to find the scripture reference. So we need to wait for people to look up scripture references. Now, to me, there are sort of two kinds of scripture references in my teaching and when I'm preaching. And the first kind is the kind where you need to wait for people to look it up. And this is a scripture reference that I would call in-depth It's a scripture we're going to look at, we're going to take some time to go through, and I want people to have their Bibles open to it, or I want to have it up on the screen behind me. you got to wait for the guy back at the booth to pull up the scripture. need to wait for people to shift their eyes to the scripture, wherever it is, either in front of them or up on the screen. So if you have an in-depth scripture, wait for people to look that up. But there's another kind of scripture that I use, and I would call it in-passing a scripture that I use in passing. And that's one that I don't expect them to look up, and I'll just say it and I'll move on. I don't want to send a message to the people that are listening, you need to look up the scripture. It's just something that I'm going to share and maybe give the reference for, and maybe just the chapter reference, not the chapter and verse. So be aware that there are times when you really just need to wait for people to look up a scripture. I used to, I'll get into this here in just a second, I used to carry a big Bible with me and I would flip through and find the scriptures or I would have a piece of paper in the Bible and would take my time. But now I include the scripture references in my notes. So this is another point about notes. Include the entirety of the scripture reference in your teaching notes. And that's helped me a lot too because then I'm not distracted by flipping open a Bible or fumbling around or whatever. I've got everything that I need right in front of me. But I have learned the hard way to double-check my references. There have been times when I've mistyped what the reference is. And so I'll say, you know, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, when it's actually 2 Timothy chapter 3. So anyway, people are looking at the wrong thing. So you need to double-check your references in your notes. Make sure everything lines up correctly. Again, a teacher's role is to create a, a line of thinking. And anything that interrupts that line of thinking is a distraction. And we don't want to distract people. Now, David Pawson often made a good point that people are to search the Scriptures and not look up the Scriptures. And originally, the books of the Bible didn't have chapters and verses. Those didn't come along for several hundred years, at least. I should do some research on exactly when we got chapters and verses. The chapters came first and then verses later. But if somebody knew where a scripture was, they knew the entire book of the Bible. And they would search out this reference. You had to really search through to find this reference. So sometimes David Pawson would not even give a chapter or verse reference. He would say it's in the book of Ephesians and encourage people to search out the scriptures. I often will give the chapter reference. So, for instance, I might say in Ephesians chapter 4, we read this. And then if somebody wants to go find that, they've got to read Ephesians chapter 4, not just the verse. 
And that helps people search out the scriptures, and it helps people learn the context of a verse. So you might want to think about how you present scripture references. If it is a specific verse that you need to wait for people to look up, then tell them that scripture, the chapter, and the verse. But if it's in passing, you can just mention the chapter that it's in, the book and the chapter. Okay, I probably will have other things I can share with you all later, more pet peeves about teaching. But again, I want to say that a teacher's role is to create this line of thinking, to lead people through this linear set of thoughts so that they can gain understanding about the kingdom of God, about God and his character and his promises. And the ultimate goal is so that we will know God, not know about him, but know him. Some of you know about me. You know a little bit about me. Some of you know me personally. If we're teaching in a church, the goal is to help people have an experience of God, to know him. The purpose is to make disciples of Jesus, people who follow Jesus, not just know what he said or believe that he said some good things, but people who are committed followers, submitted followers of Jesus. And in all of this, I pray that you will more and more walk into the gifts that God has for you, build up those gifts so that you can serve the church well and draw people closer to our living Lord. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, You will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening and God bless you all.